1: You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans. And ahead this hour, the ransomware scourge. Can the star-studded gathering of CEOs at the White House today come up with a way to solve it? Tim Cook, Satya Nadella, Jamie Dimon, and more all gathering as we speak will bring you the very latest. And the rising cost of being unvaccinated. Delta now charging workers 200 bucks a month if they haven't gotten the jab. How it works and whether other companies are expected to follow suit. And it's a stock showdown in rapid fire. A face-off in retail, the IPOs to watch and the best bank to buy. But first we begin with another day of records for the S&P 500 and the Nasdaq. Come with me and I'll show you on the Telestrator here. We are just below 4,500 on the S&P today. First time that's happened. NASDAQ, of course, crossing 15,000 yesterday, hanging on to a gain. We're up at 15,047. So modest uh, increases across the board. Dow and S&P leading the way up about uh, three-tenths of 1% today. In terms of the sectors, look through the uh, NASDAQ names that are leading the way. Obviously, some technology plays are helping to boost us higher. Chip stocks, in particular, the SMH ETF is up about more. More than one percent today. One and a half, call it, led by Nvidia. Nvidia, is just the little engine, we, not the big engine that that could, that just keeps going and going. Two and a half percent gain for Nvidia over there. And checking on the cyber stocks, as I mentioned, that White House summit. The ETFs tracking the group are all higher as well today. Cybersecurity ETF up one and a half percent. Uh, one and a quarter gains. Okta up 5% today, CrowdStrike, and these are all coming off a monster week. We'll have more on those uh, rallies a little bit later on. Meanwhile, take a look at the 10-year. It's just crossed a key technical level to the upside as yields march higher globally. You can see this turn here uh, that seems to be accelerating, 1.33%. Where do we go next? Let's bring in Rick Santelli with more thoughts on the breakout in rates. Rick, the breakdown in the dollar, and what's going on with this little uh, risk on move here?
2: Well, I do think that if you look at this week or indeed the last week and a half, you've had a short term breakout. Look at the two week chart. We're about ready to close nearly at a two week high for 10s at a two week high for 30s. But I do caution. We need to be careful here. I do think that the major resistance is still slightly above the market. Right. Right under 140. Let's keep it simple. The bottoms in 2012 and 2016 were in the high one thirties. And even though we've snugged up in a couple weeks from 112 all the way up to today's high at 134, which, by the way, is a technical level. In addition, it's the 50 day moving average comes in at one point three three percent on tens. Let's look at it since the beginning of July. You can see how it's moved higher. But the key here is, is international, all global rates are going higher. Look at Boone's, a one-month high. Look at the U.K. Guild, two-week high. As we go into the Fed speak that's coming out of Jackson Hole, this isn't about the U.S., it's about the globe. It's about a world indebted that's still floating in liquidity that's not paid for, and all these things are making many investors a bit nervous. The fact that the equities have held in strong is a positive But you see that the dollar index has softened up a bit. We want to pay close attention to that. If there really is a breakout above 140, the dollar index is going to be going well above the 93 mark. Kelly, back to you.
1: All right, Rick, thank you very much, Rick Santelli. So is it too late to jump into the reflation and reopening party if you haven't done so yet? And what if the Fed surprises with more taper talk than expected this week? Joining me now is Charlie Wabrinskoy. He's vice chair and head of the investment group at Ariel Investments. Charlie, it's good to have you. So let's start with this. I'm not sure quite what to call this move. Is it reflation, inflation, reopening? And this comes off a summer in which this trade did not perform well.
3: Uh, Yes, and I'm glad to be on today. This is the kind of day that we think (laughs) is going to be typical going forward. It's all the above, Kelly. We're we're going to have We had, obviously, the Delta variant caught a lot of people by surprise. It caught markets by surprise. It caught me by surprise. And it wasn't good for for what I'm about to say, which is that we think directionally we're going to have a very strong economy based on reopening, based on pent-up demand. We're going to have uh, a lot of inflation, uh, and we are going to have higher interest rates. We are going to have tight labor markets. We're going to have consumers and workers with more money in their pockets and itching to spend that money. And we're going to have record high money supply. All of those things point to reopening, reflation, uh, uh, higher interest rates. And that's good for a certain kind of stock, value stocks. It's not so good for growth stocks.
1: What happens if we get further into the fall? We all are headed inside for the winter, and there's a fifth wave that starts making the rounds. What if the taper talk this week is a little bit more hawkish than expected.
3: Yeah, well, then interest rates will go up higher, but you're absolutely right. The risk to this, and I, I do think I said this was a risk three months ago. If if COVID doesn't get better, like I think it's going to, uh, then that wouldn't be good. But we're all, re- we are making progress. With the vaccinations, rates are getting higher. People are building up immunity from having gotten the disease. I don't think the next round is gonna be as bad as this. Even this round, the deaths weren't as bad. Uh, even though the cases have been so ugly. So I think we're making progress uh, against this disease. And I think we're going to be pretty close to dealing with it. Remember, it it doesn't have to go away completely. It just has to be something where the economy can deal with it. And I think we're going to have that conditions next year.
1: Let me flip the question on its head a little bit. In a week where the the Nasdaq's over 15,000, the S&P 500 over 4,500, when do you look at those levels and feel like things are a little unmoored?
3: You know, um, importantly, uh, so we think that tech stocks are uh, unanchored to reality. They are benefiting dramatically from these low interest rates. We've talked about this before. Tech stocks earn their money way in the future. If you have a low discount rate, then the present value of those earnings is pretty close to that of a value stock. Value stocks make their money today, so they're less hurt. They benefit less from low interest rates. So as that changes, we think now the Nasdaq is exposed. The S&P 500 is exposed because it's got such big exposures to large cap tech stocks. So we think the right place to be is in value, small cap value. Uh, The fund that I manage is trading at 13 times earnings. We think that's uh, the opportunity.
1: Yeah, you're sort of um, hedging against the indexed by stock picking. Um, so you have some names that have done really well this year. Mosaic's up 41%, Northern Trust even is up 27%. But let's talk about Madison Square Garden. As a Chica- you're a Chicago guy, right? Why all the right. love? These stocks, whether the E or the S, they're down like six to 25% year to date.
3: Right, well, people Madison Square Garden Entertainment owns the real estate. They own Madison Square Garden, which even a Chicagoan will tell you is <laughs> one of uh, the prestigious venues around the world. Uh, They're building the Sphere in Vegas. We toured the Sphere uh, about a month ago. It's going to be a spectacular site for concerts, and we think there's a lot of demand for entertainment coming in. They own the Rockettes. Uh, It's just, frankly, real estate is going to do very well in an inflationary environment, which we think we're going to have. Real estate tends to hold its value, plus it benefits from the reopening trade that we're talking about. Plus, the Knicks are going to be better than people <laughs> than they've been. Watch J.J. Barrett. Watch that team.
1: If that's any part of your investment case, I'm worried. Uh, but you're, no, the real estate piece of that is very interesting. When that sphere finally opens, I think we should interview there, Charlie. Uh, I, I've heard more about it from you than anybody.
3: <laughs> I love it. You're going to love it. It's the LED screens. It's basically the entire ceiling is one big LED screen. It's going to be a spectacular concert environment.
1: Well, it would be nice to kind of uh, have a, a vision of what the world could look like post-pandemic as we all get back together again. Charlie, thanks very much for your time today.
3: Thanks, Kelly. Thanks Charlie
1: Babrinskoy with Ariel Investments. Now, we mentioned the cyber summit at the White House today. Right now, in fact, a group of the biggest names in business are getting set to meet with administration officials. The move comes as cyber and ransomware attacks continue to spike. Since 2019, ransomware attacks are up 62 percent globally and 158 percent in North America. For more on what might get accomplished today, let's bring in Amon Javers. Amon.
4: Kelly, we'll take a look at the video here. You mentioned those CEOs. It is an all-star list of attendees at the White House today. Some of the biggest heavy hitters in American business have been arriving uh, at the Southwest Gate at the White House. Some of them even carrying their own bags, believe it or not, uh, as we watch some of the arrivals here of some of the top executives uh, coming in. Uh, One of those executives, Dr. Arvind Krishna, who's the CEO of IBM, did stop and talk to us, and he gave us a sense of what he expects today. Take a listen. We
5: are going to announce some deliverables, but what I'm hoping to get out of the meeting is a much more holistic and uh, and coordination on how both government and industry can work together on cyber security. It's the issue of the decade, so we got to go solve it.
4: He calls cybersecurity the issue of the decade. Now, what they're going to be talking about inside the White House once they actually sit down with the president uh, is a whole host of things under that cybersecurity heading, including the cybersecurity workforce shortage. The White House has been emphasizing that there are about 500,000 cybersecurity jobs that are vacant right now. They can't find those workers. So. Part of this is going to be about worker training, uh, education, employment opportunities, and then part of it is going to be about the deliverables from the companies. Each of these companies has been asked by the White House to prepare something to release today. We can expect a slew of releases after this meeting comes out. We'll see what they do here, how much money they put behind it, given that these are some of the biggest uh, and most powerful companies in the world, and also uh, what specific changes they're expecting. We heard from the cybersecurity advisor to the White House earlier today who said one of the things she's looking for is announcements around the idea of building in cybersecurity into the hardware and software before it goes out to the public, rather than patching and trying to catch up with the hackers after the fact. So that might be one area to look at as we see companies like Apple and Microsoft are going to be in attendance as well, Kelly. Back over to you.
1: It's a really difficult problem. I saw even Travelers is there maybe to speak from the insurance piece of it, but what could be done to really stop this is is a huge pressing question. Eamon, thank you for now. We appreciate it. Eamon Javers is at the White House. And speaking of hacks, let's check on the ETF with that name, The biggest components in their performance year to date are Cloudflare up 62%, Cisco up 34%, Fortinet is soaring 106%, and Splunk is actually hanging on to about an 8% gain. Coming up, Moderna trying to follow in Pfizer's footsteps, J&J wants a booster, and Delta Airlines tells its employees to get the shot or pay up. We have all those stories coming up on The Exchange.
2: This is The Exchange on CNBC.
6: People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Yay!
1: Welcome back. News on COVID vaccines today on making them and taking them. Moderna f- pushing for full approval while a J&J booster could be on the way. And Delta Airlines offering a new incentive to its holdout employees. Meg Terrell and Phil LeBeau joining us for those stories. Now, Meg, let's begin with you.
9: Hey, Kelly, well, Johnson & Johnson trying to provide some data to get in the booster conversation. Of course, we've heard US health officials talk about folks who got Pfizer or Moderna needing a booster shot eight months later. Well, now Johnson & Johnson saying that they have given a booster dose to their single-shot vaccine uh, to a small number of people in an early trial six months after getting that first shot. And what they saw is that it produced what they call a rapid and robust increase in spike-binding antibodies to the extent that they're ninefold higher then about a month after people got their first shot. Now, this comes as health officials, including the CDC, in a tweet yesterday have signaled they expect J&J will require a booster, saying people who receive J&J will probably need a booster dose, saying they need more data. This is the first we are starting to see of that emerging data, and we are waiting to, to see more, specifically uh, on the safety of giving a second shot, as well as the efficacy against Delta, as J&J has actually shown that their immunity... Um, Remains stable out to at least eight months. But this showing uh, what people are calling promising news that you can boost those antibody levels up six months later. On the Moderna front, uh, saying that they have finalized their submission for full FDA approval of their vaccine. And so we'll wait for the FDA to accept that and then see how long that process takes. That would put it in the same class now With Pfizer, which got that full approval on Monday. And just more news coming out really uh, in the last hour or two. Pfizer and BioNTech now say they've started their submission to the FDA for their booster dose and plan to finalize that submission by the end of this week. And so we're going to see that go through the regulatory process, the FDA needing to sign off, and then the CDC as well, Kelly. So this is really starting to move into the fall. And and even the vaccines, you know, the the
1: efficacy that you get from actually having had COVID still seems to provide better protection. I'm thinking about my kids who, the, you know, the older two had it. And if they were asked in the future about vaccines or whatever, is there a way to say, to prove in the same way we hold our vaccine card or something to say, no, but they, they had it, right? So even when we, I forget sometimes when we go if they're not wearing a mask and I'm like trying to explain to people, no, no, they already had it. I'm not, you know, I don't think they're going to get it. Or maybe they should be wearing masks. Anyway, my point is, how do we recognize the people who literally had COVID as part of the quote unquote protected population?
9: Well, the data actually suggests that uh, you get better protection from the vaccines than you do from natural infection. We haven't seen that when there are vaccine passports, that that is extended to people with natural uh, infection. Some argue that they should, because it's not like you don't get any protection from natural infection. You just get better protection from the vaccines. Um, And so that's a really good question. And whether that's something that will come up with schools as the vaccines get extended to younger kids um, will be an important thing to be looked at for sure. Should they be masked if they've if they've had COVID? That one I'm confused about. Yeah, the CDC's guidance applies to people who are vaccinated or unvaccinated. It doesn't stretch into whether people have had prior infection. And so for kids who would be in a crowded place, uh, in a place with high uh, community transmission, I think the CDC's guidance would be masking.
1: Strange. Well, interesting. Meg, thank you very, very much. I appreciate it. Meg Terrell. <laughs> Let's turn on that note. Uh, before we turn to Phil Lebeau, here's a look, speaking of vaccine and Zen boosters, at how the leading stocks have been faring so far this year. Moderna is up about 282%, huge gain. Pfizer is up about 28%. Johnson & Johnson is only up about 10%, and that's about half the gains we've seen for the whole S&P 500 so far. Now, companies are pulling out all the stops to nudge workers into getting vaccinated. Now Delta Airlines says it will charge employees who don't get the shot. Let's bring in Phil LeBeau for the full details here. Phil?
10: Kelly, this is an interesting approach that Delta is taking. We've seen this from airlines deciding how are they gonna get more employees vaccinated. United said you've gotta be vaccinated by a certain date, otherwise you lose your job. Now Delta is saying if you're not vaccinated by November 1st, it will cost you. So here is the mandate, if you will, from Delta. November 1st is the deadline. Unvaccinated workers will be hit with a surcharge, a monthly $200 surcharge on their health insurance if they are not vaccinated. In announcing the new policy, Delta CEO Ed Bastian said the average hospital stay for COVID-19 has cost Delta $50,000 per person. This surcharge will be necessary to address the financial risk the decision to not vaccinate is creating for our company you take a look at shares of Delta, keep in mind that 75% of the employees are already vaccinated. What about the other 25%? That comes out to about 17,000, 18,000 employees. They are not vaccinated, so they've got 75,000 employees. The goal is to get as close to having complete vaccination for all employees, and that's why Delta is taking this approach. Quickly, also want to talk about American and Southwest. If you look at the four largest airlines in the U.S., you now have United and Delta setting vaccine mandates, if you will. But you haven't heard anything from Southwest and American. Both airlines say they highly encourage their employees to get vaccinated, but at this point, neither of those two airlines has made a decision to follow what we've seen from United and Delta. Kelly?
1: Yeah, and it was interesting to read that Delta said, look, it's $50,000 sometimes, these hospitalizations for unvaccinated workers, and so uh, healthcare premiums are going up for everybody else. We'll see if other companies uh, follow suit in this way. Phil, thank you. Phil LeBeau with the very latest. Coming up, more surprises as we look into a hot investing trend in water. As investors pile into water-themed mutual funds, do they really know what's in them? We'll dig into Morningstar's concerns. Plus, is the real estate market hot or not? We'll get the latest pulse of luxury to see what this leading indicator is telling us about what and where people are still buying. We're back in a moment.
6: At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate, pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu.
1: Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. Dow's up just shy of 100 points. We're up 135 at the high. So we're hanging on to about quarter percent gains here throughout the afternoon. NASDAQ is lagging slightly, but both the S&P and NASDAQ hitting some pretty big round numbers today. The S&P over 4,500 for the first time. Financials are the best performing sector, as we were talking to Charlie Wabrinskoy about earlier. American Express, JPM, Goldman Sachs all moving higher by 2 to 3%. And it was around this time yesterday that GameStop started skyrocketing. Remember that? Let's check in today. It's been in and out of the green, hanging on to just shy of a 1% gain right now. But it's remarkable how well it's held up since meme mania earlier this year. We'll have more on that a little bit later on. Another stock popular with the Reddit crowd is Cassava, or Cassava Sciences. They're hitting back today at questions about the accuracy and integrity of the trial data for their Alzheimer's drug. They're saying the claims are false and misleading. Uh, the shares, though, are still down 26% for uh, SAVA. And finally, Toll Brothers is gaining today, beating on earnings, saying low inventory and low mortgage rates help their results. And they expect to build 10,000 homes this year with an average price of $830,000. Wow, Toll often seen as a luxury play up a little more than 4%. Over to Rahel Solomon now for a CNBC News update. Rahel.
11: Hi Kelly, and here is your CNBC News update at this hour. A House committee investigating the January 6th insurrection is demanding records from the Trump White House and several intelligence and law enforcement agencies. The requests carry a two week deadline. New York's new governor raising the state's official COVID death toll by nearly 12,000 to more than 55,000. Governor Hochul says that she's trying to restore confidence by giving a more honest picture of the pandemic's casualties. Although the higher number isn't totally new because Johns Hopkins and others have already been using a higher tally of New York deaths for months because of known gaps in data provided by Cuomo. And the World Health Organization says that it is still unclear where COVID-19 came from. The group warning that the origins of the disease may never be found and that the window of opportunity to determine the beginning of the pandemic is closing rapidly. And on the news, what's getting in the way of investigators and why China is accusing the U.S. of politicizing the search for answers? That of course airs tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern.
1: You're now up to date. Kelly, I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you. Coming up, it's a sector showdown in rapid fire today. Department stores versus sporting goods. Which booster shop will see the biggest boost? A consumer-focused IPO face-off and bank buybacks reign supreme. We'll explain all of it next. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should also be on your radar right now. It's time for rapid fire, and we're doing sector battles today. Here to battle it all out, our own Mike Santoli, Steve Grasso, the CEO of Grasso Global, very nice, and a fast money trader, and Nancy Tangler is chief investment officer at Laffer Tangler Investments. So next we need like Santoli Capital to round things out here, (laughs) I think. Uh, First of avoid that, (laughs) A tale of two retailers. (laughs) Dick Sporting is soaring on blowout earnings, reporting 21% sales growth last quarter. As the athleisure trend and outdoor activity boom continues, sales were actually 45 percent higher than in the same quarter of 2019. Just unbelievable. A different story for Nordstrom, though, which is sinking despite a beat and raised quarter as sales remain below 2019 levels. So, Nancy, Nordstrom or Dix, do you stick with the winner or pick up uh, Nordstrom as
6: the value play here? Uh well, as a shopper, I say Nordstrom. But uh, <laughs> as an investor, I think Nordstrom is a very difficult stock to own. Uh, there's leadership issues. If you look at uh, their sales, they have not returned to pre-pandemic levels, and the margins are not expanding as fast as as even Macy's. Uh, if you go into the stores, you'll see that there's very little selection, and they've cut back staff pretty dramatically. And you kind of go to Nordstrom to get the experience. I think Dix has demonstrated much better leadership, much better management, and and they're moving towards trans, you know the exp- experiential uh, shopping experience and I think that's not that's not the case at Nordstrom. Uh, and so I think you want to stay with the winner here uh, and wait for Nordstrom to, to get it figured out because last thing I'll say is they don't even get credit for the rack which hmm. is also still below pre-pandemic levels but it's never really shown up in the valuation and I think maybe they need to rethink uh, the, the strategy.
1: Steve, would you echo that? Is there anywhere else in retail? I mean, it is surprising to see that Macy's can execute better than Nordstrom in an environment like this.
5: Yeah, yeah. So, so I agree with every, everything uh, that was just said. I, but I'm going to go a little bit underneath the hood and we'll talk technicals. Yeah, JWN Nordstrom ran uh, 20% into the print, Kelly. What does that tell a trader is that maybe it was already baked in. Maybe that's the reason for a little bit of the weakness coming out of the print. I, I do believe that Dick's, on the other hand, pulled a lot of sales forward. Sporting goods, bikes, fitness equipment, equipment, uh, glamp, uh, glamping, as, uh, as <laughs> probably uh, all of us would do, versus camping, right? So when I look at it, I say on, uh, at first blush, I'd like Dick's better, but I don't think it's ever been this far extended above its 50-day moving average. It's about 30% above its 50-day moving average. I would wait there I would actually buy Nordstrom. Wow. But I don't like I don't like any of the fundamentals involved in Nordstrom. The only reason why I would buy it is technically <laughs> it's finding support around that December 2020 level, and maybe you're due for a bounce.
1: All right, so a difference of opinion here, Mike. Full disclosure, I just bought my parents a glamping trip and happy birthday, <laughs> dad, today. Um, <laughs> I, I'm not asking you to, to sort of make a call here, Mike, but what would you say when you look at the technicals versus the fundamentals yeah. and the fact that we have two big, big moves in these stocks uh, this week.
8: I think what's instructive, Kelly, is the divergent responses showed you the level of uncertainty that investors have about just exactly what was most mostly a pandemic phenomenon and what's the norm afterward. Because Dix is getting credit for, okay, maybe this actually is a more enduring, kind of lifestyle shift, younger people, that's going to be more of a spending pool that gets more money over time. Whether it is or not, that's the market's conclusion right now, whereas you know, Nordstrom, after Macy's and Dillard's had much better beats, uh, I think the question is, okay, I guess we're back to where we were before, yeah. which is department stores are kind of sluggish and challenged, and maybe they look cheap, but probably for a reason.
1: Right, or worst case, they're the odd man out. Fair enough. Yeah. All right, moving along. Oh, by the way, be sure to catch Nordstrom CEO Eric Nordstrom on closing bell at 3 p.m. Eastern time. So, of course, a lot of questions to ask him executionally about the brand in this environment. Next, the battle for vaccine supremacy. Pfizer shares are actually lowered today despite getting full FDA approval for its COVID shot this week. They also just started rolling submissions for FDA approval of its booster dose. And J&J is also losing steam after saying its COVID-19 booster does prompt a rapid and robust immune response in test patients. Both stocks higher on the year. Uh, Steve, but Pfizer versus J&J, someone else in the space, or would you avoid uh, the vaccine names altogether?
5: So, so I am long Pfizer. I, it's been a, a perennial holding of mine uh, forever. And uh, so I, I would have to go with that one. Uh, full disclosure, I am long it, as I said. It's up 30% year-to-date against jo- Johnson & Johnson, which is up 10% year-to-date. Kelly, what we always say as traders, you get good news, bad price action, maybe it's already in the stock. That's probably what we're seeing just a little bit here. But I would say that nobody has any clue as to how many boosters you're going to need how ongoing this is going to be, and how much corporate America is going to demand that you get these shots. Ultimately, they're both buys, but I would stay with Pfizer.
6: Nancy? Yeah I'm going to disagree with Steve again. I think from here you want to own J&J for, and and that is just because of the robust biotech pipeline they have from their acquisition of Actelion, and the fact that they have a lot of levers to pull and they've underperformed. On a valuation basis it's more attractive in our work and I think eventually the, the vaccine boost um, to the stock prices will fade and we'll be judging these companies on fundamentals again. Well, we have, like, the
1: whole market summarized here with Nancy and Steve on
6: this panel. Um, So you for J&J, and I I appreciate
1: it. Let's talk about the consumer clash of names looking to go public. Eyewear maker Warby Parker is planning to go public via direct listing on the NYSE. It's S1 showing sales grew in each of the past three years, but its losses did, too. It's expanded, remember, from online only to 145 brick-and-mortar stores could be part of the cost. Also on the docket is Dutch Brothers Coffee filing to go public and expecting about $100 million capital raise on a $3 billion valuation. They've grown from a single pushcart in Oregon to the largest privately held coffee chain in the U.S. with more than 400 stores. Mike, start us off uh, here on I don't know which of these two is the more interesting IPO story to you.
8: Well, Warby Parker certainly, I think, is uh, the one that's more uh, eye-catching. I honestly didn't plan to use that pun, but I just <laughs> thought of it right now, uh, simply because the brand has been so buzzy for so long. But looking at the numbers, they operated near break-even. Um, it's, it's not necessarily uh, the kind of thing where it's so early in its development phase that you can have these huge pie-in-the-sky expectations for just how fast it can grow, I don't think, because, you know, it's a defined market. It's not like people are going to w- buy five times as, uh, you know, as many pair of eyeglasses next year as this year, so it's about market share game. It's consumer habits. It's an interesting brand, but not necessarily killing it on the bottom line. Dutch Brothers coincidentally last week encountered them for the first time when I was in the Pacific Northwest. Uh-huh. Kind of a fun theme. My 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 daughters knew about it from social media, you know, stuff. I guess, and they wanted to try it. So I, I think that that's a more familiar story of a well-loved regional chain that actually has lots of expansion possibilities in other parts of the country. Uh, don't know necessarily it's going to be some kind of big profit bonanza either, but it seems like it's a more clear path to how they grow from here.
1: Well, now we're, we're homing in on where you were on vacation last week, Mike. So Dutch Brothers is <laughs> going to help. And I've <laughs> yeah. learned over time with these rapid fires, investors want to follow what the Santoli girls are doing. That has been a profitable <laughs> strategy. Nancy and Steve, yeah, I want to say-
8: it was, a, it was a moderate thumbs up on the, on the coffee. A, they, look, let's be honest. They <laughs> They serve mostly desserts in a 20-ounce cup. It's like you know, exactly. sweet stuff. That's
1: I don't sure. like Starbucks coffee. It clearly hasn't you know, hurt their growth yeah. prospects. Nancy <laughs> and Steve, just a quick word. I want to save time
6: for the banks. Nancy, would you buy either of these IPOs? I mean, I, I take a look at Warby Parker. I do think they have uh, an opportunity to grow revenues in more of uh, like a service model. And that, and by that, I mean, contacts are just 2% of revenue. And if you get the return visit of, of contact purchasers, that could be a great revenue uh, source. So I, I think if I had to pick, and I don't like Dutch Brothers Coffee either. <laughs> Steve?
5: <laughs> so, so I agree uh, on the 2% uh, area of growth in the contact lens. But even management's not sure that they can have any consistent earnings going forward. So we're going to keep the show consistent. I'm going to go with uh, Dutch Bros (laughs) on this one. And I think... They they have drive-throughs and that's what this segment is actually reaching for. They already have them.
1: <laughs> More research <laughs> for me to do. Finally, the battle of the banks. New data from B of A shows financials have overtaken tech as the sector with the most share buybacks after a record-setting week of them. By the way, four of the six big U S. banks announced billion dollars billions of dollars in new buybacks last quarter. The two largest were a 25 billion dollar commitment from B of A and 30 billion dollars for J P Morgan. So Nancy, as buybacks become a part of what would make these stocks potentially attractive unless, you know, people want that capital used in other ways, B of A or JPM, which one's more attractive to you?
6: On our work, it's JPM, uh, Kelly. And I think we've been making an argument that that buybacks across all sectors, have been putting a floor under the market. Uh, and and that seems to be the case. We're above pre-pandemic levels. But we also like the dividend increases. So our commitments are uh, JP Morgan Goldman, Morgan Stanley. B of A is just too expensive on our work. I think it's a great company. So I go with JPM. Steve. Steve.
5: <laughs> here, here we go. And, and I agree 100%. And when you look at the year-to-date performance, B of A is up uh, 39% against, I think, middle 20s in J.P. Morgan. So they've definitely outperformed, and that would get to the point where they're a little bit more expensive. J.P. Morgan is definitely best in breed. You could ask 10 people, and I bet you a knee-jerk reaction is uh, 80 90% say that J.P. Morgan would be the, their bank of choice. And to that uh, last comment on buybacks, you can't reach across the market, right? You can't, because there's a lot of rules to, to buyback. I can't shop the order. So you can't run the stock up on a buyback, but it's extremely supportive. When people know that the buyback is there, uh, to the other point that was made, when people know the buyback is there, they're more apt to actually buy the stock. JP Morgan, we can finish off holding hands. Okay, finally. Michael, give us a closing word.
8: Yeah, I mean, I think market-wide buybacks are a big theme. They don't always benefit directly the company doing the buying back of stock because they buy it from people who the cash goes into a brokerage account. They often buy something else. But I think it fits into an emerging theme of quality, stability, the kinds of companies that might work at this part of the cycle as well.
1: Well, that is such a nice, comfortable place to leave it. Stability, everybody agreeing. This has (laughs) been a really enjoyable rapid fire. Thank you, everybody. Mike Santoli, Steve Grasso, and Nancy Tangler. Now, take a look at shares of Palantir dropping here in the last few months moments as a new court filing reveals that a glitch in a program used by the FBI allowed unauthorized employees to access private data on a particular case for more than a year. Prosecutors say they're looking into whether the problem might have impacted other cases, but obviously a black eye for Palantir. It's down 3%. Coming up, six water-focused funds have launched in the past year with inflows of nearly $4 billion. But some of the holdings seemingly have little to do with water. Why Morningstar suggests these funds are too watered down. That's next. Welcome back. Water funds are at the crossroads of two hot investment trends, ESG and thematic investing. According to Morningstar, there are about 65 water mutual funds with around $35 billion in assets. Six of them launched over the past year and have already had $4 billion worth of inflows. And some of the most popular holdings are seeing big gains this year. Names like Xylem, American Waterworks, and Pentair. Pentair, higher by nearly 50%. The funds aim to invest in companies managers believe are limiting water use or creating solutions for cleaner drinking water, both increasingly important these days. But there's a catch. Since they directly invest in water rights or have direct exposure to the price of water, names like Nike and Hyatt Hotels can also be included, which my next guest says waters these funds down. Joining me now is Bobby Blue. He's Morningstar's Morningstar Manager Research Analyst. Uh, Bobby, it's great to have you. So, why would a fund justify holding Nike?
12: Well, look, the the fund company that owns uh, Nike and their fund, that's Calvert, uh, their strategy, they purport to invest in water use leaders. So they look at uh, sectors that might have heavy use of water. These are things like apparel, uh, the hotel industry. Um, and they look to identify companies that have uh, really efficient use of water, and Nike they deem uh, a, a, as one of those leaders um, in the apparel sector. Um, certainly, that, that's a noble goal, and you know, uh, the reason behind that checks out. But um, ultimately, what we found is a lot of investors, when they buy a water fund, they're looking for something differentiated, um, and what ultimately happens is you have this amalgamation of securities spread across numerous different sectors. And you end up with, you know, fairly standard equity beta rather than anything really differentiated.
1: So, and I'll quote from the report, you say, it's doubtful you need a water fund. They are niche funds that may duplicate exposure elsewhere because many of their holdings figure in other more diversified stock funds. So I guess there's two reasons people might want exposure to water funds. One, like you said, is because is they're not correlated, It's diverse, which you're saying maybe that, that's not the case if they hold a lot of these other companies. The other reason, though, is more of this ESG idea, the idea of I want to invest in water with an eye towards those uh, water companies improving their environmental goals. Do they achieve, do these funds achieve that goal, do you think?
12: Certainly some of them do, uh, or at least purport to. Um, the, the challenge is many of these holdings are conglomerates. So you look at something like Roper Technology, which is one of the top holdings in many of these different strategies, yes, it does have a fairly sizable uh, water filtration business, but they're also supplying equipment to the oil and gas industry. Uh, They have business lines that are really spread across the globe. Um, So to, you know, single out that that water filtration business, which is, you know, a a marginal part of their business, it's hard for an ESG investor to you know, ensure that each incremental dollar that they allocate to a water fund, which then goes on to Roper Technologies, it, it's hard for them to specifically say, we want this to go to the water filtration business. It's getting spread across many different business lines uh, that also often have little to do with uh, the ESG theme.
1: Well, as more money pours into ESG investing, this kind of reporting is more important than ever. Bobby, thanks for joining us. We appreciate it. Bobby Blue with Morningstar. Still ahead, New York is dead. Long live New York. The eye-popping numbers from a new high-end real estate report. And who's giving the Hamptons a run for its money? That's next. Remember, you can catch this show anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange podcast. We're back in a moment. Welcome back. Luxury real estate in Manhattan and South Florida has been unstoppable, according to Bespoke Real Estate, which focuses only on the $10 million plus markets. Both locations have seen triple digit sales growth from 2020 to this year. In fact, Bespoke's year to date transactions have already surpassed a billion dollars. It's total from last year. Joining me now is the co-founder of Bespoke Real Estate, Cody Vachinsky. Cody, it's great to have you. So, you know, from this point of view, people who would say, are folks leaving Manhattan for South Florida? um, You know, your answer is yes, but also Manhattan's still doing great.
0: Yeah, exactly. I think at our level, people have optionality. So they they see Florida as a smart investment, a great place. They, I think, understand its lifestyle fits better than ever. Uh, It's not like their need to offload New York to take a dip into Florida's real estate market.
1: So tell me what, is driving these trends you know in past years we would have been talking about the influx of foreign buyers in latin america and russia and all these different cohorts is this now us demand global demand where's it coming from
0: it, it, to be honest, it's interest. It's intra-market. So most of the people who are Florida excluded, but there's a lot of people who are laterally trading and trading up in Florida. But in Manhattan, you see seven out of the 10 buyers on the super high end are already in Manhattan. They already own real estate. In Manhattan. Same thing goes for Hampton's real estate. And I think Aspen has that same dynamic. A lot of the people who are deeply invested in those communities, they understand it. They're closest to the deals. Uh, they appreciate the lifestyle elements and so they view the market as opportunistic uh, they take advantage of it
1: so broadly speaking Cody I come to you I say okay we've got the hamptons manhattan and florida to pick kind of your three best markets you tell me what's going on with real estate trends there super hot or you know which one of them is the hottest or cooling down i mean are you seeing any signs of cooling down broadly speaking
0: um I, I think there's a lot of demand in the marketplace. I think that feverish, p- feverish pace that we saw in 2020, like I got to get it home, I got to get out of the city, the, the COVID uh, push it, it, to me is somewhat over. Uh, I do think it's going to take time to fulfill the demand that's in, in all those markets that you mentioned. Uh, I think it's going to be elongated. I think money is still cheap. Uh, I think the biggest concern I have across all markets, and a lot of people have echoed the sentiment, it's factual. The supply is, is pretty meager. Hmm. Quality supply is meager. And uh, I think the biggest threat to the the boom that we're seeing is sellers' expectations, uh, so are we embracing new levels of highs or are we on the precipice of a different market? You know, the time will come.
1: You know, it's funny you say that because we've heard the same thing from other realtors we've spoken to across the country who that they say our sellers are just just not willing to cut prices yet. <laughs> you know, they've seen what these properties are going for. They see the increases and they're really holding out for that price. Do you think that strategy is going to work? And I'm curious if you're also seeing demand coming to some extent as an investment uh, demand, you know, real estate as an inflation hedge, that kind of thing.
0: Yeah, uh, good questions. I, I think not all markets are created equal, but what we've seen is a trend across all those markets is there's been a lot of liquidity, new liquidity, existing liquidity, but it's been actualized in, in these markets and the best buyers are going for the best properties. So, you know, we just uh, are, are closing on a 100 plus million dollar deal in the Hamptons, uh, you know, we did $50 million deal in the city. So I think trophy properties are more in vogue than ever before. You know, decade ago, it, you 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 heard a hundred million dollar deal, your head would explode. Now they're happening all over the country at sort of a crazy curve. Um, so I, I think buyers want the best now, uh, and they're seeking the best. So we're hoping that more apex properties come to market uh, because there's definitely a, an increased demand for that. Um, so I, I generally think that we are. Uh, I'm on the edge of of sort of unknown territory as it relates to super luxury and how consumers are going to be acting with these types of assets in the future.
1: Yeah. Quick question, Cody. I'm just curious, since you have such a sort of front lines window into all of this, we've seen these huge residential towers going up in Manhattan. It's obviously not dead. There's plenty of people buying, like you're describing, even as return to work is not happening. It's being delayed. People's offices are moving elsewhere. Is Manhattan going to turn into like a bedroom community?
0: <laughs> uh, I I don't think so. I think you have people who are are diehard Manhattan. You know, like that's where their lives are. That's where their kids are. Uh, in during the pandemic, we looked for arbitrage. You know, we had a lot of people who are very smart and sophisticated investors and also end users who said, "Now's the time. It's a good time to pounce on the market and go after condos and go after townhomes." And it, literally, we couldn't find it. You know, I think a lot of people who have roots in Manhattan and who are deep believers and just beyond sort of the economics of, of that market. There's it's there's no place like it in the planet. So we're super bullish on Manhattan. I think there's still opportunity there. I think there's there's no place like home for a lot of people.
1: <laughs> Cody, thanks so much for your time today and, and a little synopsis of all these different markets. We really appreciate it.
0: You got it. Thanks, Kelly.
1: Cody Vachinsky of Bespoke Real Estate. Up next, shares of GameStop soaring over the past two days, but they're still down about 55% from their February highs. We'll dig into the revenge of the original meme stock in just a moment. Welcome back. The original meme stock is back. Mentions of GameStop on Reddit's Wall Street bet soared yesterday to about twelve thousand. Christina Partzenevich is here to dig deeper into the trade. Christina,
7: thank you. I did see one headline today that read "an otherwise boring trading day," but that's really rarely the case if you're into meme trading. And once again we saw a surge. So GameStop shares, you can see right now, are down, but they rallied 28% on Tuesday. So what summer vacation? The trading volume was three times higher than the prior 30-day average. And it's incredible. Just over a one-year period, the stock has traded as low as $4.56 to as high as $483. And it's not just GameStop. AMC also surged 20% higher yesterday. There's no major news catalyst. But there's a lot of unusual call option activity for both AMC and GME, aka the option to buy the stock at a specific price. The moves do show there is bullish sentiment across the board. And then you've got AMC options. Volume came in at almost three times its daily average, the single most active stock in the options market yesterday. And following a trend, a number of other stocks across the board, meme stocks with status like Clover, Health, as well as BlackBerry, all trending higher yesterday. And since so many of us suffer from FOMO, so the fear of missing out, at least you can say this wasn't me. Because hedge fund Gotham Asset Management admits they missed out on a potential $400 million in gains after having sold its entire holdings in GME and AMC before the retail training media took off earlier this year. And why should we all care? AMC is the largest position in the iShares Russell 2000 ETF at a half a percentage point right now but if meme stocks like AMC keep rising, that could be good news for small-caps ETFs. Uh, Trending interesting, higher.
1: interesting point, often because we talk about it as a value index, too. But what are the main theories as to why these
7: all of a sudden this week started to lift again? Some of the connection that a lot of people like to make is Bitcoin crypto traders. So we did see the crypto price rally Bitcoin, specifically Ethereum as well, above 50000 So maybe some of those guys cashed in on the money and then moved their money into options trading. But that shows just in terms of the option trading I talked about for those two stocks. AMC and Gay GameStop that it's keeping a lot of analysts on their toes because there's been, you know, calm right now, and then boop, there goes the volatility. <laughs>
1: yeah, that's for sure. Keeping all of us on our toes. Christina, thanks very much, Christina Parts and Eveless.
7: That does it for the exchange, everybody.
1: You've been listening to the exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day. Same time, same place.
6: At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll. after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently at
11: capella.edu.